This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, Converts Edition. We will be spending the entire season looking at converts and conversion experiences. So far, we've been focusing on the rules of social psychology and neuroscience that make those conversion experiences the fascinating exception. It is almost impossible to change your own mind or to change someone else's. Of course, just because it's difficult to impossible doesn't mean that people don't try. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the most extreme version of changing someone else's mind, brainwashing thought control, indoctrination, the spooky stuff, in other words. We'll be guided through the process by science writer Kathleen Taylor, author of Brainwashing, The Science of Thought Control. We reached her by phone in London. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So this is a series about conversion experiences. And for the first couple shows, we focused on why it is very hard for one person to change their own mind. But I was hoping you could help us understand the extreme end of the other side of the issue, which is when people try to force others to change their minds. That's brainwashing, right? That's what people think of as brainwashing. Yes, the classic kind of Manchurian candidate perspective whereby somebody, you know, goes into a situation of captivity and stress and comes out miraculously different with their all their beliefs changed, or at least their most important beliefs changed. Now, that, of course, is a fictional experience. When I'm talking about brainwashing in my book, I distinguish between two kinds. Um, one I call brainwashing by stealth, which is the more kind of manipulative thing that you might do with, for example, um, controlling the media, um, controlling the um, sort of advertising, all that sort of stuff, in order to persuade often large numbers of people, to believe a certain things which may not actually be true. So there's that kind of sort of mildly manipulative, kind of deceitful side of it. But then there's the other side, which is what I call brainwashing by force, which is what you would think of as this kind of psychological torture, very extreme, the kind of thing that happens in, um, you know, prisoner of war situations, that sort of thing. Now, that, that is a kind of different process, but the thing about it is is that it uses the same processes as less extreme versions of persuasion, only those processes are themselves applied very intensely, if you like. So it's a difference in quality, not a difference in kind of thing. What it isn't is magic. 
And we've been talking about the psychological process of trying to change someone's mind in a much more, uh, let's just say, friendly way, or at least in a direct way. And the people we've talked to so far, a social psychologist and another neuroscientist, have said it's just incredibly difficult. People, once they make up their minds, our brains literally kind of uh, are resistant to changing the pathway that we, we started on. So how is it possible that, that this kind of persuasion or coercion works? Well, there are very different um, views on whether it ever kind of works to any permanent state. Mm. I mean, as I'm sure your previous uh, contributors have Im- implied, once you've laid down a pattern in the brain, that pattern is there and it's very hard to get rid of. What you can do is change the stimuli or the incentives, the rewards, so that it is more likely that another pattern is followed. Okay, so that's what you're trying to do when you're trying to, like, break a habit. You know, people say that you should, you should do something else, distract yourself with something else. You're trying to make it so that every time the stimulus comes in, instead of going on and doing what you used to do, you do something else. But that doesn't mean that the old pattern isn't still there. And so what you often see in the kind of historical accounts of people who were brainwashed is that they come out, they act, you know, like they've got these whole new beliefs and they're, they're, they're saying everything as if they're, they're in that situation. They actually believe what they're saying. But then if you take them out and put them back in their previous life, then things tend to kind of fall away and they often go back to, you know, what they were what they were doing before, what they were thinking before. So something that can seem like a very extremely passionately held belief in the heat of the circumstances may actually not be so well established that the old pattern doesn't then take over if that person's given the chance. An awful lot depends on the pressures of the situation. And you must remember that obviously in the kind of historical cases where brainwashing by force was alleged, those pressures were very, very extreme indeed. It's complex. And one thing you pointed out to me when we talked before was that it's not like you can really research this kind of coercive technique in a lab. Brainwashing is characterized by changing beliefs that people think are very dear to them. Now, I use that phrasing precisely because people think that they're sort of political values and stuff are very dear to them and very cherished and very important. But that's not always the case. You know, I mean, if you're a political activist, then yes, this stuff really, really matters to you. But for an awful lot of people, you know, the mores of the place they grew up in may kind of just be stuff that is in the background. They've never really thought about it, and it's not that vital to them, not compared with, say, you know, surviving or friends and family and stuff like that. So these are often abstract values that are supposed to be very strongly held, but may not actually be held that strongly anyway. So if you look at, again, the Korean War, you get people who are standing up and denouncing the the U.S. way of life and, you know, the American dream and all the rest of it. Well, they've been brainwashed, haven't they? Because they were all passionate believers in the American... Well, probably they weren't, actually. A lot of them were just soldiers trying to get on, and they hadn't given a great deal of time to rhapsodizing about abstract political values. So it wasn't such a strong belief that was being overlaid, you see. Most of them went back to being good Americans once they'd got through, and, well, actually, most of them had a lot of mental health issues afterwards. 
because of what they'd undergone. But, you know, they, a lot of them disavowed their communist conversion afterwards. So that's one way of explaining what looks like to some people what we might call brainwashing, which is this idea that perhaps this was an area of beliefs which wasn't so strongly held to begin with. And also with the caveat that it's very difficult to research this stuff because we can't exactly put an MRI on top of someone undergoing this these things. Are there cases of genuine brainwashing, I guess, as, 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 you know, as well as you can define that term? Very hard um, to find. I mean... <sighs> It's, it's very difficult. There are certainly cases where people suddenly seem to kind of adopt a new belief system. Um, yeah, the sort of Damascene moments, you know. Mm-hmm. And often what they say is that they were they were groping around and they had lots of the pieces and then suddenly something happened and it all made sense and it all kind of burst upon them with the force of revelation. So those, those cases are reported. Now, um, the question of brainwashing is... It's different in a way because that's, we're talking force here. Mm-hmm. Um, there have, I mean, there, there is some documentation in the literature of people who were kind of pressurized so much that they just adopted the new beliefs to basically save their lives um, and then stuck to them like glue afterwards. But as I said earlier, most people didn't. So I would say there is some evidence, but it's low quality. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, of course, cases of people who adopt cult beliefs. But again, you know, it's not just because of the force that's being applied to them. Yes, that is happening. But actually, there are always more incentives going on as well. You know, there are good reasons, it seems to the person at the time, to go for these beliefs. You know, the ones that really adopt it, it's because it makes sense to them and there are there are good reasons, it seems, for them to believe these things. So let's pretend we're going to try to brainwash someone, which I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot. It's a completely unethical thing to do and we are not going to actually do it. But what does that process look like? How, how does one go about attempting to coerce someone into a different set of beliefs? Okay, well, I think of it in terms of five factors that I talk about in the book. The first of those is isolation. So if you think of patterns being laid down in the brain, if those patterns are not used much, they tend to kind of develop less influence over behavior, okay? You tend to think about them less often, the memories come back less often. So the the first thing you want to do is to isolate someone from their past life so that everything that is stimulating those old beliefs and those old memories is no longer there to kind of bring them into mind. So that's the first step. The second step is to control everything that's coming in. So the media, who they're talking to, what they're thinking about as much as you can, um, you know, what they're reading, you know, all that sort of stuff. As much as you can, you get a grip on that and you feed them what you want them to understand. And what that's doing is stimulating all the new beliefs, but again, not the old ones. So you're, you're starting to lay down new patterns in the brain to replace or kind of distract from the old ones. The third thing you're doing is you're using uncertainty. Uncertainty is really stressful for human beings. You know, most people do not like being in a state where they don't know what's going on. In fact, I think there's been research that's shown that people would rather have a negative stimulus like an electric shock than 
sit around not knowing what was going on. It makes us feel very out of control. It stimulates all sorts of kind of urges to resolve the situation, and it's very frustrating. So in the first sense, it's very negative, but it's also very useful because what people are looking for is an answer, and they want it quickly. And there you are, the brainwasher. You've got the answers. You've got your new belief system, and you've worked it out so that it explains all the stuff that they're likely to ask. So you use uncertainty. Fourth thing you do is repetition. And repetition is classic in these situations. If you look at, like, re-education camps and stuff, they go on and on and on about the same stuff all the time. You know, you have to keep diaries of your thoughts and discuss them in groups. You have endless lectures and sermons and all the rest of it. So repetition just bangs the pattern into your brain again and again and again. And the fifth aspect of all of this that you're using is going to be emotions. So basically, putting it very simplistically, you're trying to associate negative outcomes with the old stuff and positive outcomes with the new beliefs. So when you're talking about the new beliefs and you're towing the party line, then everybody's you know, ever so friendly and they all think you're wonderful and they tell you how brilliant you are and you feel like you belong and all those positive emotions get activated. So you're getting not only the sense of belonging and friendship and status, but you're also getting the sense of uncertainty being resolved, no cognitive dissonance, everything's feeling great. And obviously when you're slipping and you're going into the old beliefs, then you get stamped on, you get lots of punishment, people turn away from you, you lose all those benefits. And so that's really quite an important incentive for people. Now obviously individuals vary in how susceptible these how susceptible they are to these techniques, but you just you, you know, you modify it to the individual and you make sure you have lots of kind of co-workers around you so that you can really boost the sense that, you know, when they're talking about the old beliefs, they're in a minority. And when they're talking about the new beliefs, they're in a nice little group. And, you know, we humans are very susceptible to that kind of group pressure. Always have been. We're group animals. And so put the five of those together and that's how you would do it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back... Kathleen helps me fill out a hypothesis about thought control as a less extreme, but just as corrosive process in our lives at this very moment. If you're looking for a fun way to pass the time while engaging your brain and enjoying breathtaking visuals and a gripping story, your answer is best Fiends. Best Fiends is a casual game that anyone can play. It is full of bright colors and whatnot, but it was made for adults. It is problem solving. It just has a little storyline about little garden friends and a slug that you have to kill. And I'm going to be honest, I don't follow the storyline so much because I like the problem solving part of it. And I like kind of doing the visual and spatial uh you know, twisting around of things. Like, all of this stuff is kind of like Tetris. If you like Tetris, you'll like this, even though it's a different game, but it's just as addictive. They update monthly with new levels and events. It never gets old. And Best Fiends, as a company, treats the game like a service for their players. I um, could not tell you the amount of characters I've collected. I believe it is more than three. I am not playing it perhaps as much as I would if I wasn't crashing on this podcast that you are listening to right now. But it is a wonderful distraction from, you know, everything. Engage your brain and fun puzzles and collect tons of those cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. 
Download Best Fiends free at the Apple App Store or on Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Ahead of this year's elections, the team at Crooked has been hard at work trying to find the best ways for all of you to make a difference, aside, of course, from casting your own ballot. Now they have an answer. Vote Save America's brand new Adopt-A-State program. The Adopt-A-State program lets you directly support the work of organizers, volunteers, and candidates in the six key battleground states that will be the most important to winning a progressive majority in 2020. There's Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina. I know from our Slack channel that North Carolina needs some adopters, but I'll be adopting Wisconsin. Being in Minnesota, I know Wisconsin needs a lot of help. They can't really do it on their own. They need the help of the good, strong, nice Minnesotans to come along and show them what to do. When you sign up at Adopt-A-State at VoteSaveAmerica.com, you'll get specific calls to action, things you can do yourself at home right now, like text your friends in Wisconsin and give them shit. That will make a huge impact on the races in these states. Adopt-A-State right now at VoteSaveAmerica.com slash adopt. And you probably shouldn't give people shit. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. And now, let's get back to our conversation with Kathleen Taylor. So looking at those things, it occurs to me that that set of steps does occur in a kind of, I wouldn't say accidental, but let's say not extremely um, intentionally coercive way. Like I'm thinking about people who for instance, might be lonely, just lonely. That's isolation, right? And then they join a, you know, online, like, group of some kind that's very strict about, like, what the kinds of things they talk about. And then this person has some uncertainty about what they've left behind. You know where I'm—you see where I'm going. Yeah. I do, absolutely. Um, if you join an online group that's talking about a particular topic, you know, that's fine as long as you're getting information on that topic from other sources as well. But the trouble is that, you know, quite a lot of the time we don't get our information from multiple sources or reputable sources. We tend to get it from just one or two. And if those two are very attuned, then effectively that's narrowing down our cognitive horizons. You know, we're starting to, in effect, isolate ourselves. And that hands more control to the people who are running those those groups, who are, are saying what is coming into our feeds, what is coming into our timeline. And then uncertainty maybe is just more of a, um, I guess that's that wouldn't be really imposed, perhaps, unless it's from people in this group kind of talking individually with the newcomer, saying, are you really sure? Do you, are you, do you know that's what you believe? Yeah, it's quite easy to raise uncertainty um, when when there isn't any. I mean, you can easily query stuff, you know. Um, for example, I mean, classic movies to say, well, you know, but I mean, they would say that, wouldn't they? That's the mm-hmm. establishment. 
you know that's the elite you know but you know what if they're what if they're trying to do it for a reason you know what if they've got a secret motive or a hidden agenda mm-hmm. bang there's your uncertainty you know and it's especially easy when uh this is kind of one of my pet beefs but it's a lot of scientists pet beefs because scientific thinking is not well understood beyond science there's always room for somebody to slip in that wedge and kind of say well look you know they're not certain about it therefore they must be wrong or they might be wrong or or they could be wrong and you know whereas actually of course science doesn't work on certainty that's not what it's about at all but that's difficult when people are looking for certainty and want certainty it's difficult for them not to see science as kind of wrong because of that gap Right. And so that, you know, so, yeah, you can raise up uncertainty. Um, and, you know, it is done sometimes very deliberately. I mean, there have been deliberate campaigns by certain special interest groups to manufacture uncertainty where, you know, there really isn't any in terms of the scientific consensus. Um, and, you know, that's been done repeatedly. Or it might even be kind of an accidental situation in a way. I'm Again, this is just fun to kind of think of where this series of steps occurs in the wild, as it were. Like, let's say the government first says, you don't need to wear a mask. And then they say, yes, you need to wear a mask. <laughs> that's, um, that's another place where you see it, you know. Um, people are, it's partly, I'm afraid, because the media have to have novelty. And mm-hmm. so you can't just go on saying the same thing all the time. You have to kind of vary it. And also because they... they some, some of them like to manufacture confrontation where there really isn't any. And so those tendencies, and, you know, those tendencies aren't because the media are evil and want to kind of make life terrible. It's because we human beings are attracted to novelty and to confrontation. You know, they, they pull us in. So, so all of that kind of conspires to, to, to make things kind of seem a little more black and white than they actually are. But then if you're expecting black and white and you're used to black and white and then somebody comes along with several shades of grey, you know, that's the problem. And so especially with young developing sciences like, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, where this was a new disease, so of course they didn't know about it. That, 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 is, that leaves a big gap. And into that gap, you slip things from other belief systems that you already have. Like, for example, you might worry about kind of big pharma and vaccines mm-hmm. or something like that. And that easily transfers over to the new situation because there's even more uncertainty in the new one than there was in the old one. Yes. Unfortunately, now I'm seeing a very clear progression here where someone might become a conspiracist about the pandemic because we were in isolation, right? Um, people do tend to uh, be in media bubbles. And then there was a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen. And then repetition, that's almost like when you look at the media, that's another thing. It's not like they're evil. It's just things are going to get repeated. Well, and, rolling news doesn't help. Right, right. I kind of sometimes wonder what it would be like if we just had our news rationed to like, you know, three hours a day. And that was it. But as it is with rolling news, you just do get a lot of repetition. Of course you do. And you also get a situation where, you know, certain factors in the media will be covering certain angles and spinning certain lines and others will be spinning other lines. And so, you you know, I mean, depending on what you 
you read in the in the press in the UK, you know, you will just miss some stories completely. They're just not they're just not covered, you know. Um, and that's I'm sure even more the case in the states. So oh, yeah. repetition, yeah, but repetition of particular lines and not others. And you've already, you know, we've taken as a given people have been in a media bubble. And so in their Facebook feed, they're already maybe trending towards some doubts about, you know, the, the powers that be. And then there is the uncertainty that is just a part of a, a new science. And then their Facebook feed, like, it's higher and higher ramped up. We have already know that from other studies that it is uh, high-impact headlines and headlines that are very snappy uh, and and emotional um, that get put into people's feeds. So then we're at emotion, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And we're also at control because somebody is determining what goes into those feeds and what doesn't. And that will depend very much on the media bubble you're already in. So as I was saying about stories that just don't get told. But um, but yeah, I mean, emotion is always a good way to kind of... Uh, remember, these are not designed to be kind of long, serious pieces. They're designed to catch your attention and move on, you know, because that's the model of how social media works. But um, And yeah, and indeed how the press has worked for, for, for generations. But, um, but yeah, emotions, uh, you know, fear of the outsider, fear of the new, fear of change, uh, need for certainty. Um, I think kind of think of need for certainty and need for closure and need for control as kind of like emotions. Mm-hmm. I know they're often kind of seen as cognitive, but actually I think they, they tap pretty deep feelings. Um, you know, fear, anxiety, stress, you know, depression, all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, there's the positive side of things as well. You know, the dopamine hit and being part of a gang and all that kind of stuff. Right, because that's the other way that social media works. We're not just seeing headlines, maybe, that are tailored to our burgeoning beliefs, but we might join a group that is interested in that belief. Or we might go, let's say, to a protest (laughs) where everyone's being very congratulatory towards each other. And you have your main news source also saying, what heroes, what champions, what fighters for liberty? Yes, absolutely. Um, And, you know, that's all kind of, well, it's all kind of bolstering, but it's... (sighs) You know, I mean, it's it's conditional. You know, mm-hmm. you only get that as part as long as you do what the group tells you. Okay, well, this is all very depressing. <laughs> okay, and I will just say I have a few people in my life who seem to have slipped along this five-point pathway. Is there anything I can do? Oh, Lord. Um well, the problem is um, that the kind of probably the, one of the questions you need to ask is what are they getting out of this? Why are they, why is it, I mean, you know, it's not just have they been misled. It's easy to kind of think, oh, they've just been misled and they've been reading the wrong stuff and everything. And yeah, of course, that's part of it. But, you know, are they getting something out of going along this pathway? Because that's probably the best way to tackle it. Um, what are they getting from there that they're not getting from elsewhere? So that's one of the questions you might want to ask. Um, and another one is, how can I open up their bubbles a little bit by, you know, trying to uh, encourage them to uh, get rewards from, like, maybe reading different stuff, talking to different people, that kind of thing? Um, 
the way not to do it is the way that a lot of people try to do it, which is to go in and go, you know, I think what you're doing is completely wrong. Uh, you know, how can you even think like this? And there's another real bind there, because if we're going to stay in this particular genre of misguided beliefs, the truth is the world is actually maybe a little scarier, but in a different way than they think, right? It is the, the case that this virus is very contagious and a real threat. You know, you can't say to this person, this safety that you believe that you have because you're resisting authority, right, and you are part of a group, the truth is unfortunately that you are actually more at risk and you're putting yourself more at risk by not believing the science. I, 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 I will point out, <laughs> in this particular case, um, they're wearing masks and I'm kind of like, okay, like I will just, I'm going to stop doing any kind of direct assault <laughs> on this. Because as long as they're wearing masks and being, you know, relatively uh, safe, uh, I don't feel like I'm going to have to go in and really shake them or even try to do something more subtle. But I think that that problem is one that is representative of the entire project if you're going to try and wean someone away from, like, let's be explicit, we're talking about, like, right-wing conspiracy-type thinking, is that they're drawn to that point of view because they believe that the world has become unstable for them and they're under threat from immigrants, you know, from the elites, from all those people, and they have found safety in a belief system that tells them we will protect you. And yet, if you want to show them what the what the alternative is, it's actually maybe a little more scary for them, which is the world is an uncertain place. You know, there there is economic instability. <laughs> I, I know you don't have a solution for this. <laughs> well, I mean, that is part of the problem because, um, you know, if you are, if you are, I mean, people vary very much mm -hmm. depending on their personalities, but also, you know, on their life circumstances, on how much structure and stability they, they need um, and how much they have kind of learned to expect. Um, and some people just can tolerate uncertainty better than others. So, I mean, you know, there's all those variables as well. But, um, you know, you'll never, you, you also have the problem that if somebody from outside comes in and tries to kind of sort it out, then you're going to end up being labeled as an outsider. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's social death as far as the group's concerned. Um, you have to kind of be aware that they need you to believe that you are on their side. Um, you know, and that is why certain politicians have succeeded so phenomenally well, despite what one might call um, obvious setbacks. Uh, <laughs> they, they have made people believe that they are on their side. Right. You know, all, all the great leaders do that. But I mean, you know, I mean, it's a problem in many countries that, um, mm. you know, you have someone who is not required to be a good leader in any of the traditional senses of the terms because that sense of personal identification is so strong because mm -hmm. they are on your side, aren't they? Therefore, you know, they are your leader, effectively. Um, but that 
can only emerge in a situation where everybody was feeling basically pretty secure at the best of times anyway. Now, you know, obviously the pandemic has changed all that, and it'll be interesting to see how the repercussions play out. But, you know, that, that sense of personal identity um, is, is really, really what's at the heart of this. And you have to kind of get the person that you're trying to uh, help to believe that you are kind of with them and on their side. Otherwise, you're just part of the outsiders, the elite, the establishment, big farmer, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, if, it, if you're seeing people in that binary terms as with you or against you, then it's very, very easy to be put in the against you camp. And after that, you might as well save your breath. I feel like we're coming around to something that's come up in our other conversations as well, which is the most effective ways to get to someone whose beliefs you might want to influence, let's not say change even, is that you have to not try to change them. (laughs) You have to not take any kind of direct assault. And you need to develop a relationship with that person that that person can trust. That person needs to know that your affection, your attention, uh, your relationship to them is not dependent on a shared belief, actually. Well, I mean, this is the basis of all good therapy, isn't it? Um, (laughs) You know, and it's also the basis of our social evolution. I mean, we evolved to look up to people who looked like they knew what they were doing and to trust the people who looked after us and cared for us. And as a matter of course, we absorbed their beliefs as children. And, you know, as adults, we still do the same. So, um, you know, the, the personal relationship, I mean, what I'm saying is that beliefs are not kind of like objects, not these, I mean, some beliefs are just kind of trivial, but, but the beliefs that we're talking about here, the, the important beliefs are not just possessions or objects or things that we have and we pick up one day and put down the next. They're much more like um, parts of our identity, parts of who we are. And because of that, when you attack them, you attack a person's identity. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, you know, to do that, I mean, this is why the going in and saying, oh, I think you're wrong and you're talking rubbish is, is really not a good idea because you're actually insulting and challenging that person as a person. Never mind what, you know, you may say, oh, I only mean your beliefs, I quite like you, but that doesn't actually carry any conviction if you've just insulted their dearest, dearest faith, you know. You have to kind of um, work with who they are and make, sure that they understand that you respect who they are before you start trying to do any manipulation. Thank you so much for bearing through all the issues we had. And uh, perhaps we'll talk again. This is just so, so interesting. Um, Thank you so much. You're welcome. And that is it for the show. I will remind you gently that we could use some rates and reviews. This is a new project, if not a new show, and we really want to know how it's going, how you like it. Another way you can show us your appreciation, if you appreciate us, is to visit our sponsors. And I want to let you know about a new project I am doing with John Moe, the host of the Hilarious World of Depression podcast, which is great and hilarious. And if you listen to the show, you would probably enjoy that show. 
We are doing something we're calling the hilarious world of with friends like these, where every week on Instagram Live, so far 3.30 on Wednesdays, 3.30 Central Time on Wednesdays, we do a kind of mental health check-in and take some questions and talk about how things are going. This week, we talked about systemic inequality, how airplane travel is probably bad, but how we love airports anyway. And I promise it was much more interesting than that sounded. Until then, take care of yourselves. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.